like everybody's life, it's a series of opportunities, some missed and some taken, and I just managed to find my way to WHO and spent most of the last 25 years chasing around the world after viruses. If we add vaccines to an effective control program, we can get rid of this virus and get back to our normal lives. I think we need to turn our health service around, making the system work for our shareholders. And the shareholders in our health system are the people who actually use it. Dr. Michael Ryan there, Executive Director of the World Health Organization. His voice and face have become familiar to millions worldwide since the WHO declared COVID-19 to be a pandemic. A former trauma surgeon and epidemiologist, he's also an alumnus of NUI Galway. He's my guest on this edition of the Kush Karba podcast, the series that examines major societal issues and the role that NUI Galway and our global network of alumni play in creating new knowledge, in research, in policy making and in problem solving worldwide. I'm Tom Fell and I begin by asking Dr Ryan about his own experience of attending what was then University College Galway. Something possessed me that I wanted to get in and, and do medicine and got into NUIG. And I don't come from a medical family. I don't come from a family with a medical background. But I think a lot of people at NUIG came from that more small town, more rural parts of Ireland. So it was an interesting collective of people. Yes, we had people from the east, but it was all along that western seaboard from Donegal to Kerry. And not a whole lot of people were from the big, big city. So you had this really interesting mix of people. We, we came into a UCG as it was the time when science and medicine were expanding as a discipline there. So it was an interesting, interesting time to, to be in Galway and, and to be in college there. And a huge opportunity for me to be able to, to do medicine, you know, less than what, 50, 60 miles from where I came from and be able to spend six years in Galway learning and having quite a bit of fun at the same time. It was the class of 88 we graduated in and uh, that uh, heady period when NUIG was beginning to grow and uh, Galway was becoming established as a, a centre of the arts, not only in Ireland, but in Europe. So it was a most amazing time to be in Galway and to be at NUIG. How did you end up at the WHO? How did that happen? I did uh, medicine, did my intern jobs, went off to Scotland to do orthopedics and begin my surgical career. Got myself a job assigned to the, the specialist registrar training program in Australia at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. And on my way there, a number of us actually who were at the NUIG were hired to work at the Ibn al-Bitar Hospital in Iraq. And many of us were caught up in the hostage crisis there. And I unfortunately uh, had a bad accident uh, with some other people who did too. And uh, had a very bad back injury and it kind of bounced me out of uh, medicine or out of surgery at the time. I couldn't pursue my surgical career. And once more, uh, NUIG stepped back in because uh, Cecily Kelleher was then the professor of health promotion in the newly formed department in Galway. I was beginning to slowly lose my mind in recuperation and called up Cecily and asked, could I just do anything to help? And I volunteered to work on some research projects that NUIG were doing in terms of health and public health and uh, did that for a couple of months and then went on to do the master's uh, at University College Dublin because there was no master's program in in NUIG at the time. So it was interesting that I did that, educated at NUIG, but when I I was injured and needed to change career, at least I had the chance to tread water a little bit and find a new path through Cecily's uh, mentorship. I went to the UK subsequently 
and joined the higher specialist uh, training program there in communicable diseases at their national centre, the CDSC, or it's called Public Health England now, and went on then to join the WHO in 1996 as part of the European Programme for Intervention Epidemiology Training. So again, if I was to say to you this was all planned and I had a plan and nothing could be further from the truth, like everybody's life, it's a series of opportunities, some missed and some taken, and uh, I just managed to find my way to WHO in 96 and spent most of the last 25 years chasing around the world uh, after viruses. Of course, you're famous now for your, for your work on COVID, but you, know, you have done enormous work in Africa, particularly around Ebola. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, with many, many of our, our colleagues and, and many Irish have served in the front line. I've uh, worked with many Irish NGOs with goal, with concern with so many others in the field. Uh, and again, they're my real heroes are the NGOs because so many Irish and other nationalities work with the non-governmental organizations uh, in uh, humanitarian settings, in conflict settings, uh, in development and, and in emergency response. I've worked in places as far afield as from Kosovo to Kigali and to Sierra Leone to Somalia to Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, on different things from polio and meningitis, cholera, Rift Valley fever, relapsing fever, Lassa fever, Ebola, as you say, Marburg, uh, so many others. And it's been a privilege to and an honor to work with so many great colleagues in fighting epidemics and responding to natural disasters and humanitarian situations. And the Irish, we're overrepresented, actually, very much in those settings. Uh, We may only be three or four million people, but the number of Irish professionals I've met working abroad and that, and and not only that, but the the peacekeepers who work from Ireland are unsung heroes, in my view, and uh, very often based there out of Galway from the battalion there. So uh, it's been a very, very career, I must say. Were there lessons that the world could and should have learned from Ebola? You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can all look back down and say all the things we should have seen and should have done. We've been saying it, many of us have been saying it for 20, for 30 years. I mean, the, the World Health Reports of, I think, 1997 and 2003 and 2007 were all about health security threats. We had SARS that scared the living daylights out of us, and yet we went back into complacency mode. We had H5N1 avian flu. We went back into complacency mode. We had the uh, pandemic in 2009. We went back into complacency mode. We had Ebola in West Africa. And I don't think we quite went back into complacency mode because WHO took the issues associated with the response to that event very seriously and the creation of the emergencies program here at WHO, which I lead. And WHO's efforts to improve our performance, both in emergency preparedness and emergency response, really have helped us to increase our capacity to react and respond to a lot of high-impact epidemics and humanitarian settings. But the scale and speed at which we've seen this pandemic unfold would likely have overwhelmed anyone's capacities. Because in some senses, you know, no more than in sport, your performance on the pitch is determined by you know, the hours you spend in wintertime in the gym and training at night in the rain. And it's the hours you put into the system and the muscle memory and your team cohesion before you ever get to play a match. And unfortunately, too many times we're trying to work out our tactics and trying to work out who's plays best where during the game. 
It's not the time to do it. The time to do it is before the game. That's when you plan your systems. That's when you condition your system to be able to react and absorb the punch that is uh, an emergency. And our failings are less in response. I think I always see in response tremendous innovation, courage, passion, bravery, people playing catch up, incredible examples of human solidarity and innovation. But no amount of innovation and response or no amount of courage in response replaces a lack of being prepared to start the game. Were we unprepared then? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, grossly underprepared in many key areas. And maybe not in some of the areas that we thought we were underprepared in. I mean, the external evaluations that WHO has does with countries and many, many countries scored very high, particularly countries in the North, industrialized countries, because we were measuring more static issues like the number of beds or the number of laboratories or how many trained staff So it was easy. You measure that and you say, oh, that country will do well responding to a pandemic because it has all the things it needs. And that's an important measure. I think where we saw the system come under pressure was on less concrete things, but more issues related to governance, communication, trust, uh, the ability to make agile decisions and communicate them, integration of the system, the ability of the system to to communicate and integrate its activities. So a lot of siloed behavior where the, you know, the testing system was very vertical and then we have the treatment system and, and not connecting response operations at the lowest level and empowering response to happen where it's happening on the ground. So a lot of groupthink and a, a lot of systems thinking that was quite academic and not really adapted to the realities of fighting a disease in the front line. And what happens, and I've seen it myself, when you're exhausted, when you're under pressure, that fog of war, that pressure, that's when you revert to the things you've been trained to do well. That's why soldiers are trained over and over again in repetitive ways to do the same task over and over again. Not that they're going to get better and better at the task, but that they can continue to do that task when they're tired, when they're under pressure when they're afraid, when they don't have the necessary resources. And I think that's what we've probably in emergency management across the board need to get better at. Being able to react quickly in an agile way, share information, communicate effectively with communities. They're much less measurable, dynamic measures of the system's capacity to be elastic and be fast and be agile. And I think we have to learn a bit more now around how we assess preparedness. Because I think up to now, it's been too much counting up things and then saying that's prepared rather than looking at functions and looking at performance and saying that's prepared. The news is promising right now with vaccines, but we're not there yet, clearly. What do global leaders need to do now to protect public health and minimize the spread of the virus in the meantime? Well, I'm glad you asked the question that way, because I think you're absolutely right. We have a lot of minimizing to do in the next few weeks and months. There is great hope. The efficacy of the vaccines as tested so far is excellent. So as more and more vaccines come on stream, we'll have more options, more options for production, more options for logistics and transportation, more options for the populations we can vaccinate with those vaccines. So vaccines that work better in older persons and generate a proper immune response. So we need to continue the vaccine research. And that's first message. We need to encourage everyone working in the vaccine space to continue the work. Just because we have three vaccines with a, a signal of efficacy, that's not the end of the scientific game. We need everyone to continue pushing on the work they're doing in the vaccine space to continue the work on all those products that are currently in clinical trials. 
The second thing we need to do is do not replace what we do now with vaccine. If we want in six months or 12 months, if we want COVID to equal zero, what we don't do is stop everything we're doing now and add vaccine and hope that vaccine equals zero. Vaccine will not result in zero COVID, not for a very, very long time. Even at the efficacy levels that it's calculated at, you would need still very high coverage to reach that much vaunted herd immunity level where you would control transmission of the virus with the vaccine. That's going to take time. So we still have to use the two, we still have to use the toolkit we have, physical distancing, hand hygiene, wearing masks where appropriate, and just being careful about our risk to others and others' risk to ourselves. We have to be our own risk managers and the government have to support us in that. We still have to continue testing, strategic testing. We still have to continue to isolate cases and quarantine contacts. It's really, really, really important. And I know that message is coming out from Tony Houlihan and, and, and many others in, in Ireland, but it's really important we balance the two things. Ireland has done really well. Irish people deserve huge credit. That has saved lives, not only the lives of the people who, who get sick, but the fact that the frontline health workers can give more time per patient. Because if your hospital is overwhelmed, then your loved one, when they go to hospital, is going to get the best care. So even if someone gets sick, you're protecting them by ensuring that the system is able to function at full effectiveness. So we need to keep up all of those things. It is wonderful to have vaccine around the corner. Because what that gives us is a destination. We have a journey to go on now. We need to stick to what we're doing. Add vaccines to that mix. If we add vaccines to an effective control program, we can get rid of this virus and get back to our normal lives. And I think that can happen sooner rather than later. But it's going to take a continued commitment by each and every citizen in Ireland and in the world to the basic measures to reduce risk. Uh, and then to take this vaccine if you're offered it. And we really have to build demand for the vaccine because people have got to want to take this vaccine. There's a difference between vaccine efficacy and vaccine effectiveness. And we know we have an efficacious vaccine, but we have no idea whether the vaccination program will be effective because that requires people to want to take the vaccine. That's a, a really important point. And some people have, have spoken about the pandemic of disinformation, which maybe feeds into that. How concerned are you and, and the WHO about the disinformation around vaccines in general and these kind of protests about people saying their, their rights are being infringed because they're being asked to, to wear masks? How concerning is that to you and to WHO? It's always a concern when there's disinformation out there. The question is, how do we respond to that? We have to recognise we live in a world now where social media and other means of gaining information is out there. You can't turn back the clock on that. And, and it's a good thing. You know, the fact that every citizen has access to more and more information is, is good in itself. There's two things we need to do. One, on our side of the house in public health or in health, we need to be much better at delivering good information to people because the best antidote for bad information is good information. So we need to get much better at delivering high quality, interesting, attractive, correct information to people. We also need to give people the means themselves to examine all that information, not tell people what to think, but show people how they should think about these things and how to look at scientific evidence. People aren't stupid. People have brains. They make decisions every day of the life, big things in their lives. They decide where their kids go to school. They decide if they're going to emigrate or stay in the country. They decide if they're going to buy a house. People are good at making risk-based decisions. And we need to have faith in people's capacity 
to process complex information and present it to people in a way that they can make good decisions rather than attacking the message and the messengers on the other side. I don't think that's going to help. I think every voice is important and attacking other people's voices or other people's messages is, to me, shutting down dialogue, not creating and advancing dialogue. But we do then have to look as a society at the rights of the one versus the rights of the many. How do we maintain the rights of the individual for privacy or the rights of the individual to free speech? So I can want to be silent and left alone or I can want to speak and be heard or I can want to wear a mask or I can want to go into quarantine and I, I may not want to do that. So what are my rights versus the rights of a community? And what are my responsibilities versus the rights of a community? We have to balance those rights and responsibilities. And it's one thing to say to me, okay, you have a responsibility to wear a mask. But if I happen to be someone who is extremely poor and I have underlying conditions and I can't access proper healthcare, well, why should I absorb the responsibility to do something when I don't have the right to access healthcare? And this is an issue in countries. So imposing responsibilities on people without affirming their rights is not a positive thing. And I think we have to have a, a, a bigger conversation about rights and responsibilities. It has become an issue. We'll see in the many Asian countries a much higher level of compliance with government advice. A much, But that's not just a sense of compliance with the law. And there is an element of that, at least in, in some of the regimes. A lot of that comes from the way people think about society and the way they think about their responsibility to their family and their community as having equal primacy to their own individual rights. And when we look at things like uh, climate change and we look at other issues, the world is facing these moments now. My right to fly and you know uh, go on my international holidays five times a year on an airplane versus my responsibility for the planet or whatever, my right to drive a gas guzzling vehicle or whatever it may be. So I think we're all dealing more and more in society with what are our individual rights and responsibilities and then what are the rights of the community, but also what are the responsibilities of the community to the individual. Uh, we've probably had to learn faster in this space than any of the other things we do. We're good at epidemiology and we're great at lab and great at clinical science and making guidelines. We've really had to accelerate very quickly in our capacities to manage what we call the infodemic and infodemic management, both good information and bad information. How do we maximize our use of good information, minimize the impact of disinformation? And I think we are taking it deadly seriously because if we cannot communicate effectively during a pandemic, how are we going to continue to communicate effectively on other important health issues in the future? What about the developing nations of the world? You know, What should our response be as a global community to ensure that developing countries aren't left behind. How do we as a global community ensure that there's a fair distribution of these kinds of vaccines once we get to that stage? I think for the first time in history, and this is probably a really positive thing when we think about this, that the initiative, the COVAX initiative, which is an initiative between a whole range of global partners, WHO and Gavi and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Initiative, CEPI in Norway, you know, we've worked very hard on a, on a platform that now has... I think over 190 countries and economies involved and it covers nearly 90% of the world's population where countries have actually already come together. They've agreed on an allocation framework, an equitable allocation framework. That's the first time in history that's happened, I can tell you. We're in advance of having a single dose of vaccine. We've actually sat down and talked about this. In the past, equity was something that came after the fact. And that has to be seen as a positive step forward. 
The difficulty we have is right now with production levels, there's not enough for anyone on the planet. And Dr. Tedros asks the question, and I think he's right to ask this question, should we, should we support a system where all of the people are vaccinated in some of the places, or should we have a system where some of the people are vaccinated in all of the places? Because we know that it's the underlying conditions. It's your age profile and your underlying condition condition profile that determine your outcome and your likelihood to die. So we would argue if you happen to be a 68-year-old with hypertension and diabetes in Ireland or in Botswana, you're very likely to have an adverse outcome. So should we not be prioritizing those two individuals in two separate countries, regardless of their geographic uh, setting, because of their risk? And this is a very important ethical question. Uh, COVAX seeks to address that first issue around the impact and the likelihood to die or the likelihood to be exposed for health workers and high-risk individuals. That we will, through the COVAX process, ensure that 20% of each country's need is covered through that mechanism. So the people most likely to be adversely affected and die will get access to that vaccine through that mechanism. And if more vaccine and money comes into that mechanism, even more. And those agreements are in place. And that's, again, the first time in history when that's been thought through in advance. The problem we have is that that mechanism is not fully funded yet. The agreements are in place. All of the contracts are in place. But in order for that mechanism to truly work, it's going to require more funding to make give the mechanism the power to actually purchase those doses, for which we already have negotiated access. So we have access to the doses. We need to pay for them. If the barrier to equity is purely now written in dollars and not in terms of access or production or not in terms of science or technology, and the barrier to fairness is that the wealthy countries are going to have to sit and, and really examine as they vaccinate their own people that a contribution to the COVAX initiative above and beyond their own needs is going to allow people at risk in so many other countries to be vaccinated. That is the equitable and fair and just way to take this forward. And I believe the European Union have led very well on this. We've seen a lot of commitment from Ursula von der Leyen and, and the EU health ministers and the prime ministers on this issue. And I really hope the European Union continue to drive their leadership role in this space. Can I just maybe turn finally to a couple of questions about the future of education and medical education? How do you think that universities like Inua Galway can contribute to the global response now and in the future? And maybe a secondary question, what does the future of medical education look like in your view? And how would Inua Galway position itself to be a global centre for medical education? NUIG is well positioned in general in the sciences. I think it's really expanded its capacities and its platforms in, in science in general. It's always been a strong site, I think, you know, for engineering the arts and other things. So, you know, in that sense, Galway is, I think it's one of the few truly university towns that uh, that exists. It's very attractive. It's it's very safe, welcoming uh, environment for students. It's a fantastic environment to live and work in. And and the, the college is so well situated within that. And, and then you have the fact that the world is, you know, being in Galway uh, down the road is no longer a disadvantage in a connected world. You're as connected as you want to be in the world. And certainly you see the the, the industries and others that have moved into Galway in, in the last few years. So I, I think Galway is, and NUIG is very well positioned to do that. There's going to be a joint sort of medical and engineering degree together. I think that's really exciting, the idea of bringing different disciplines together 
and training people in a cross-disciplinary way. Because the problems we solve every day, for example, now on the thing we're trying to solve oxygen supply problems, I spend most of my day or part of my day when I talk to them, I'm talking to bioengineers and we're talking about adapting hospitals in African developing countries for isolation facilities. We're talking to architects in the, in the Techne network. So increasingly, the delivery of health is not just about doctors. It's about collaboration across the health space, all the way from the upstream primary science, all the way down to the translation of that. And it is about health workforce, but it also is about health innovation. It's also about doctors working better with other parts of the health profession. And that's one thing I would say to the Irish uh, medical profession and, and to uh, NUIG. We need to create much more cross-fertilization between medicine, nursing, nursing and physiotherapy, occupational therapy, the other things. We need to look at health being delivered by a team, not by a system dominated by the consultant or whoever it may be. For me, that's not the model. That's not the way the thing that works in future. That's not what's going to drive the highest quality healthcare for our clients. The people we serve are the people in the surgery. Uh, they're the people in the bed in front of us. They're the people in the emergency room. They pay our salaries. They're the taxpayers. They're our employers. It's not the guy sitting upstairs at the desk pushing numbers around, or it's not someone in the Department of Health doing you know, projections and graphs and Gantt charts. Our employers are the people we serve, the ones who sit right in front of us asking for our help. And I think we need to turn our health service around to deliver those services to those people. And then solving our own internal differences and making the system work for our clients, for our owners, for our shareholders. And the shareholders in our health system are the people who actually use it. And I think we have to really change the attitude of how we train medical students and what we train them and how we train them to think about what they're doing. Not about how brilliant they are and how well-educated they are, but how do they translate that education and knowledge into meaningful services? into changing lives for the people they serve and become less self-serving about my job and my next job and whatever else it is. And I don't think that's the case. I, the vast majority of my colleagues in Ireland are the most wonderful public servants I've ever met in my life. But I think that they struggle sometimes to deliver the service despite the system rather than because the system is, is doing that. And I think the universities have a responsibility in, in doing that and delivering that sort of maybe more disruptive medicine and linking to the broader community and what we mean by, you know, healthy, what is a healthy city? What is a healthy home? How are we going to shift medicine from thinking about disease to thinking about the preservation of health and an environment in which people can thrive? So can we shift the modality away from curative services to primary prevention? and creation of environments and healthy lifestyles that will lead to longer and healthier lives. You know, when you look at the investment in the health system in Ireland, public health and preventive services are the Cinderella. The vast majority of Irish education and medical education is going into to training hospital doctors and consultants, not into, into actually training people who can change health determinants of people in the community. And it's seen as lesser science. It's seen as a lesser thing. I think this is something we really do need to look at, because if you're looking at how NUIG moves forward and positions itself in the world of health education, well, what health education are we giving to our health workforce? And who should our health workforce be? And what problem should they be solving? And is the problem always to solve the number of beds and hiring more consultants to work in those expanded number of beds? 
because we haven't de dealt with the underlying environment and the underlying lifestyles and the underlying poverty and the underlying exclusion that has leads to people being sick and that we have in the systems in place to deal with mental health and psychological stress in our communities. We really do have to think a little more about that. We also need, and we need to do this, and medicine has done this in terms of encouraging, you see more and more women uh, working uh, in medicine now. In fact, I, I would imagine the medical classes are dominated by girls now very often. But then you go higher in the system, that stops. How are we going to develop a, a, a postgraduate education system that keeps our smartest and brightest female colleagues in the system and not pushed out of the system because of the way work is structured and the way healthcare is structured and childcare is structured and how we can, you know, NUIG included, create a, a level playing field for our female colleagues that allows them to thrive and does not mitigate and punish them all the time. And, and then when you get to the top of that so-called pyramid, you realize, oh, there's not so many women around here. Well, there aren't because we designed the system to deliver that outcome. And I think when it comes to STEM in Ireland, when it comes to encouraging girls into science and into medicine, it's not just about encouraging girls to join the system. It's about facilitating and, and driving and encouraging their continued participation in the workspace afterwards and the postgraduate cycles that go with that and the practical cycles. And it's good. And I, I say that out of hope, too, because my own daughter, Kate, uh, has joined your cohorts there this year in, in genetics and genomics in her first year. And I have great hopes for her. And again, for myself and Maura, her mom, we have both went to NUIG and we're very proud to have her attend our alma mater. But at the same time, I hope that she, as a young scientist, will have more opportunities and will have less glass ceilings and will have the opportunity if she has the ability to progress in her field and her science. And that's something we haven't seen in universities in Ireland in general and in medicine in Ireland in general. And I, and I hope and I know in, in speaking with the president and others that there's a huge commitment on that part uh, at NUIG to, to really address these issues. And I hope it, it is being and, and will be done. But I, I do think health education or the education of a health workforce is something we really need to look at in a holistic way going forward. And I think NUIG has the chance to really take that on board, but you may also need to look in NUIG at your medical curriculum. It's very light on the, the non-clinical sciences and quite frankly has a, a very small cycle on public health and health promotion and health prevention. It's a very small part of the medical curriculum in all universities. And maybe that's something that in the light of this pandemic that NUIG and other universities need to look at in terms of the, the education of doctors and all health professionals. Dr. Michael Ryan sharing his invaluable insights there as Executive Director of the World Health Organization. Well, that brings this edition of the Kush Karba podcast to a close. Thanks for listening and do join us again next time for more news on our exciting new research cutting-edge innovation and our global alumni stories at NUI Galway. <laughs>